Hallelujah. Victory in Jesus. That's a great song to sing this morning. Great song to get started with. You may be seated. My wife and I had a wonderful time in South Carolina. We, um, we flew out last Friday, and we actually flew through the middle of that hurricane that was going. We were in the plane, and you know, they have the readout in the seat in front of the screen, and it said that the, we had a 35 or 36-mile-an-hour tailwind. And so that's, that's good. We're going to make it quick. And then uh, all of a sudden, it had been bumpy, and it got real bumpy. And I looked at that screen, and it was a 55-mile-an-hour headwind. So we, like, went through the eye. <laughs> it's all I can think of. But, uh, but God got us where we were going, and we ate some wonderful food. I don't know if you've ever had fried collard greens. I never had, but it was super really good. <laughs> I don't even know how they did that. But, um, but we had a really good time. We, we spoke on Saturday, and then we spoke on Sunday, and then we were getting on the plane Monday. I was thinking to myself, I could see myself living in South Carolina. Well... And then, and then the second thought went through my head, but my kids will want to live there too. <laughs> I think they're going to insist on going. That might have been the reason I had so much fun. It was, I think that's the longest my wife and I have been away from kids since our first anniversary. And we will be married 10 years coming up next year. So it was wonderful to just get away. Um, and today I'm going to get started on, um, we're, we're still in the Sermon on the Mount, but we're going to move to a new chapter. <laughs> we're going to move to chapter 6. Um, and, and it's just, uh, each part just keeps building on the other one. We're just finding, and each, as we go each week, the impact of what we've said before kind of starts to, to become more and more clear. Um, every time we look at a, little, a new little piece, we see where it fits in with everything Jesus was talking about in the Beatitudes. Um, and it all just ultimately comes together in such a beautiful, beautiful way. Um, and it just a, it, it, Jesus did a masterpiece here. Everything he made is a masterpiece, but this sermon is especially a masterpiece. And we can learn so much from this masterpiece that Jesus gave us. And so the theme is still going to be the same. We're in, we're in chapter 6, but the theme is still the same since we've, when we started. And the discussion of this theme that we're talking about and have been talking about is probably the most important sermon or statement on Christian living that's in the whole Bible. I can't think of anything that, that describes Christian living and the way, we should, the way our walk with Jesus Christ should look any more than the Sermon on the Mount. So that theme... What is the nature of true righteousness? What is the nature of true righteousness? And by that, Jesus is, has been showing the people, I'm talking about a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Whatever I'm talking about, if, if you see the scribes and the Pharisees doing it, they're probably doing it wrong, and I'm asking for more from you. In the Beatitudes, we saw that the characteristics of, of the, uh, that the Christian will exhibit that the person who really follows Christ is going to be a person who is righteous in their heart. That's so important. It's righteousness of the heart, being poor in spirit. We've talked about that, being mournful over our sin, being meek, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, being merciful, being pure in heart, and being a peacemaker. And then ultimately, the, un the unrighteous aren't going to like seeing those things in us, and they're going to persecute us. And that takes us all the way through the eight. But none of these characteristics can be produced on our own. You can't, I can't, none of us can't, Brother Bruce can't, nobody can. None of us can produce them on our own. They are the product of a person who has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. 
a person who has been renewed, a person who has been reborn, a person who has completely been changed by the Holy Spirit. That's the person who can demonstrate those things in their lives. And in the next section of the sermon, we found that Jesus didn't get, he didn't come to get rid of the law. Remember, we talked about that. He came to fulfill the law. Not even the smallest part is going to pass away until it was all accomplished. And he restored the meaning and the spirit of the law that the scribes and the Pharisees had hidden from everybody and, and had just, I guess, perverted in so many ways. They had just gotten rid of it. And he gave us those six specific illustrations that we've been talking about the last month or so. Um, and, and he contrasted the spirit of the law with the teaching of the self-righteous scribes and Pharisees. And, and what the, 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 the scribes and the Pharisees were, were trying to do is just keep the law so that you would see them keep the law. What Jesus was saying is it's a heart thing. What matters is that you're keeping the law with your heart. See, murder is a sin, right? But so is the anger in the heart that leads to murder. Or even the bad words that we say about people that we hate. Those are also sins. Adultery is a sin, right? We all agree on that one. But so is lustfully looking at someone that's not your spouse. Divorce is not commanded. The Bible tells us that. And just because the right paperwork has been filed, it doesn't mean a divorce is right unless the biblical standard was met. That's the point. That's what Jesus is saying. It's not what the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees are trying to create all these rules and regulations. But what Jesus is saying is everything is from the heart. We're supposed to keep our promises and we're not supposed to lie. See, that's, that's also part of what, the, the, what Jesus was talking about. And he talked about how even when we are treated unfairly and, and somebody just abuses us, and, and is, we rely on God. We don't try to get revenge. We don't try to, um, to go out and hurt them back. We love our enemies. Hard, hard, hard stuff Jesus is asking of us. Um, I, truly, it, it, you have to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit for any of this to be applicable in our lives. We, we really can't show these things in our lives without the Holy Spirit having done an amazing work. And so now we're entering into a new section, chapter 6. And the theme is the same, but instead of contrasting the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees, he's going to now contrast their religious practices in three specific areas, the giving of alms, prayer, and fasting. And in each of these areas, what was supposed to be an act of worship of God had been turned into a display of self-righteousness. It's what Jesus' point in all this is going to be. And after he deals with that, he's going to give us three prohibitions. He's going to command us not to do certain things that were found in the, in the scribes and the Pharisees. So, the person who is truly righteous will desire to do all for the glory of God and not bring glory into themselves. And this section is introduced in chapter 6, verse 1. And it continues the theme of the sermon, and it shows the main thought that runs through each of these illustrations and the, the prohibitions that I'm going to talk about in a second. So if you've got Matthew 6 and 1, put it on, yeah, there we go. Take heed that you do not do your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. You can leave that on there if you want, uh, Dylan, please. Um, and before we go further, I want, to, um, I want to explain something about that very first sentence up there. The... In, in some translations, instead of using um, alms or, um, or, or uh, the way it's written like that, um, that word alms could be translated as charitable deeds um, in both verses 1 and 2, which I didn't, I'm not going to 1 and 2, but, but verse 1 is really supposed to be the general principle, and then verse 2 is sort of gets it into the specifics. And so the, 
if, if your Bible doesn't distinguish this, if you have a KJV, for example, KJV has it written this way. And if you have a KJV, what, what we have to remember is that it's basically when it, that word alms there, the very first use of alms is basically talking about practicing your righteousness. Um, sometimes some other uh, translations say charitable deeds instead of alms, but it really means practicing your righteousness. That's what, that, that's what alms right there really means. And that's going to help you to remember that verse 1 is sort of introducing the whole thing, and then verse 2 will get us into a specific. So let me restate the verse, verse 1 like this. Beware or take heed that you do not practice your righteousness, i.e. doing good things, in front of men to be noticed by them in such a way as to attract their attention so they can observe you and you can be seen to be looked upon. That's a different way of phrasing it. It doesn't really change the meaning. It just makes it a little clearer for us. Beware of practicing your righteousness in front of other people so that they'll see what you're doing is, the, is essentially what Jesus is saying. Otherwise, you will have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. If you only do the good things you do in order to impress men, then the only reward you're going to get is the praise of men. Think on that for just a second. If you do good things to impress men, the only reward you're going to get is the praise of men about what you, they just saw you do. Where do we want our reward to be? In heaven. I want my reward to be in heaven. I don't want my reward to be down here where thieves and robbers can break in and steal I want, and moths can, can come in and corrupt. I want my reward to be in heaven where it's eternal. Jesus is dealing with, in all of this, he is dealing with the motives that are in the heart of a man. Once again, we see that true righteousness is a matter of the heart and not just what we do outwardly. There are some who have used this verse in the following passages um, to teach that we're to do everything in secret. Don't, don't, don't let anybody see anything that you do. And, and that's, I think that's erroneous, and here's why. We can, um, we can be very quick to look for verses that, um, that back up what we already think, but we have to look at the context always. Jesus says in verses 3 and 4 that your right hand should not know what your left is doing so that your alms may be in secret. In verse 6, Jesus says, pray to your Father in secret. In 17 and 18, he says, do not let people see that you are fasting. So is Jesus actually teaching that we should never let anyone see us give money in the church or do good deeds in the church or putting, uh, you know, putting anything in that box in the back so no one could see? Is he really saying that all prayer should be in private and we should never pray in a church? Is he saying that, um, is he saying that um, if someone finds out you're fasting, you've lost all the benefit of the fast? Let's say you were doing a, a six-day fast and on the fifth day, somebody realizes you're fasting and all of a sudden now you've lost the blessing of that? Um, and I don't think so, and I'll tell you why. If he did, then, then we would, the only way we'd be able to give is by cash, anonymous. You'd have to like come by in the middle of the night and dump cash. You know, that's the only way you could give. Or, or in, in church, you know, we would have no, no public prayer at church. Um, we'd have to cancel prayer meetings because nobody could be praying in front of each other. Clearly, that's not what Jesus meant. And then as far as fasting, it would actually put you in a position where you would have to lie. Because if I was fasting and my wife said, do you want any supper? <laughs> I'm sick, babe. I'm so sick. I can't eat. Really, I'm fasting, but now I've just told a lie. <laughs> so it, it would create some problems for us. And, and then look at Matthew 5 and 16. Jesus says, 
He, he says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So I don't think he's trying to contradict what he's saying in chapter 6. I, I clearly don't think he's trying to, to give us two different things to do. But the context is the true nature of righteousness versus self-righteousness. And what he's doing is he's contrasting the practice of those scribes and Pharisees. That's what he's saying is wrong because they were walking around making a big, big show of the alms that they gave and the prayers that they would pray and their fasting. I mean, they would make themselves, their faces look ashen and I mean, just like, I mean, down in the dumps because they wanted to be seen. And so that's what really Jesus is trying to, the issue in the whole section is our motivation. What is your motivation? Why do you do what you do? Is it for the glory of God? Or is it for men to pat you on the back? That's the whole thing that Jesus is talking about. And scripture records over and over that the motivation for the scribes and the Pharisees was to get glory from men. That's what they wanted to be seen to be doing the religious things, seen to be doing all the spiritual stuff. Luke 16, 13 through 15 says, No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Note that the Pharisees, now that the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things, and they were scoffing at him, and they said to him, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. We can fool people. We really can. We can fool people for a little while about the nature of our heart. We won't be able to fool them forever. But we can fool people for a little while. But we cannot fool God, not for an instant. He knows our heart. He knows what we value. And he knows what we do not value. He knows these things about us. He knows whether we love him. He knows if we just love ourselves. He, he knows these things. Jesus knows these things. And over in John 5, 44 and 47, we find that the very reason the religious leaders would not accept Jesus was this exact same issue. They loved themselves and getting glory from one another and not from God. That the scripture there reads, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses. You're, you claim to be keeping all of Moses' law, but the one who accuses you is actually Moses and his law in whom you have set your hope. You thought you were obeying all the laws of Moses, but that's actually what's condemning you right now. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Can you see that? Is a, that literally is a summary of the, of the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus has been trying to tell them in this Sermon on the Mount. They say they are following Moses. They've been real out front and outspoken. Oh, we're followers of, of Abraham. We're followers of Moses. We've been doing that. All those things that, but the spirit of the law, they have violated completely in their hearts. It, 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 their false practice of, of the law has, has shown that there's no, not even a hint of the law in their lives. They say they are following Moses, but as Jesus is explaining it, they're just falsely practicing the law of Moses. We find that they are, in fact, condemned by the law of Moses. That's what that scripture tells us. They're condemned by the very law of Moses they claim to follow. And the demonstration of their true concern can be seen very clearly in John 12 and 43, which says that there were even among the rulers that believed in Jesus, some of these rulers, some of the Sanhedrin actually believed what Jesus was saying, but they would not confess him because they didn't want to embarrass themselves in front of their buddies. 
They were mindful of each other. They were mindful of the Pharisees. And the scripture says they loved the approval of men more than the approval of God. They had even gotten to the point where they were convinced that Jesus was, there's something about this Jesus guy. But they would not confess that they were followers of him because they were worried about their buddy. I'm going to be judged at the Sanhedrin. They're all going to think I'm not cool anymore. I've done all these, followed the law of Moses all my life, and now here's the, the ultimate expression of the law of Moses, and I'm going to reject it at the last minute because I'm worried about what people think. Do we fall into the same mindset? Do we seek the approval of men for the things that we do? Even the good things, even our good works, and this is a very difficult thing to deal with. What is my motivation for the things that I do or do not do? That do not do is something I hadn't really thought about till I started putting this together, but that's a powerful thing too. Because what if I dream about bars and that lifestyle, but the only reason I don't go is because I'm worried one of y'all might see me there. It's in my heart, but man, what if, what if some, Brother Mike, what if you were just driving by the chalet while I tried to go in there? I'm, the only reason I'm not doing it is because I'm worried about what you think. Am I really being righteous? Or, or, or here's another one. <laughs> what if I want to go to Vegas so bad, put it all on black, but I don't do it because y'all might hear about that I went to Vegas and was gambling in Vegas. The only reason I'm not doing it is because of y'all. Am I really doing it for, am I really keeping the, and I'm not even saying going to Vegas. My mom and dad go every year. It's hilarious. My parents love Vegas. <laughs> and, and I don't know that they've ever gambled one time they've been there, but they love going. So I'm not even saying that's bad. But, but if I'm avoiding doing something that I think y'all think is bad, then I'm not doing anything righteous at all. I'm refraining from doing something because I seek the approval of people. So the things that I do and the things I do not do, are they really for God's glory or are they for my own? Who am I getting? Who's, who's seeking the glory here? Is it God's approval I want or is it the approval of men? And even things that we would think would certainly be for God's glory can be done with the wrong motivation too. And there will be no reward if we do it for the wrong motivation. I'm going to be real blunt with y'all here. I really, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling back all the curtains. I'm exposing completely. Because how about preaching? I'm talking about me today. How about preaching? Because and, and, that's something for God's glory, right? It's, it's for God's glory. Yet in Philippians, Paul mentions some that were preaching the gospel not for the purpose of glorifying God, but because of envy or strife or even selfish ambition and even a desire to cause Paul distress in his imprisonment. So he's listed now four reasons why somebody might be preaching for the wrong reason. What about me right now up here in this pulpit? Is my motivation to glorify God or is it to impress you? What am I trying to do when I get up here? Do I say what I say because I am compelled to, because of the truth of the gospel, trying to be faithful to the truth of the gospel? Or do I tailor what I say so that I can tickle your ears and not make you mad at me? What am I doing it for? Why is the reason, why is the reason that I preach? I would like to say that it is only for the glory of God, but I know how deceitful my own heart can be. It is hard sometimes not to bend what I do or say in order to please you. Sometimes I feel like the desire to be more blunt, but maybe I hold back a little bit because I want to be liked. I want everybody to like me too. I do not like, <laughs> I don't like to have people upset with me for any reason. I'm a people pleaser. 
I, I really am at my heart. I'm a people pleaser. And, and so maybe I'm going to say something. Oh, it's going to step on some toes. I, I, better not, I better hold back on that. I'm just being real honest with you here today. I, I, I hope that I'd say what I'm supposed to say every time I get up here. But I can be honest with you when I look and tell you there are times where I dance around some things because I just don't want to be offensive. I'm just being real honest, I'm constantly fighting against those fears and those desires in order to preach the whole of Scripture as accurately as I possibly can, regardless of the reaction that I get. And I pray that you please pray for me, that I continue to do the best I can and be accurate and, and rightly divide the word of truth. So enough about me. Tell me about you. We're all sitting in the coffee shop meeting for the first time. Enough about me. Tell me about you. What about you? Why are you here today? See, this was much more fun when I was talking about myself. Way more fun when it was aimed at me. But why are you here today? Is it because you genuinely wanted to come and gather with other believers and praise God? Is that the reason why you're here? Do you listen to the sermon because you want to understand God and his word better and then live according to it? Or do you come for some other reason? Did someone make you come against your will? All the people over there in that building are like, yep. <laughs> Do you come because it keeps you out of trouble? My wife won't get on to me this week if I go to church on Sunday. Are you here to socialize? Or is it because you've always gone on Sunday mornings to church? And if I'm not here, then Brother Bruce is going to mention something to me in a few weeks. He might wonder where I was. Are we trying to impress someone? Oh, I did that in, in high school. The girls needed to see how spiritual I was, you know. Are we trying to impress someone, even ourselves, with how spiritual we are? I, I'm not trying to be mean here. I really am not. But do you see how subtle this can become in our lives, how subtle it can be? And, and the scribes and the Pharisees, they were no different than what I'm describing for many of us today, honestly. Uh, including us, especially, really, they thought they were doing something that was pleasing to God. They thought they were doing all that God had asked them to do. And it was not until Jesus exposed their hearts and revealed their motivation for what it really was did the truth come to light. Now, I'm not trying to start, get us to start second-guessing everything that we do. Oh, what are my motives today? Why did, I, why did I put that dollar bill in the offering? Why did I smile at that... Uh, the person at the store, why, why did I do those? I'm not trying to get us, we'll go crazy if we did that. It's not what I'm trying to do. But we do need to examine ourselves. We need to look into our hearts. We need to examine ourselves and see why we do what we do. In 2 Corinthians 13 and 35, Paul issued a warning. He said, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves or, or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test. We should test ourselves about our salvation. Obviously, that's important. But if we should do it for salvation, then we should also examine the motivation of our hearts and then correct the little things that we find that are wrong. If we see that we're doing something for the wrong reason, let's correct that. Let's get it back on the right road. In fact, in very practical terms, you cannot truly live the Christian life Jesus has called us to if your motivation is anything other than wanting to please God and bring glory to Him. 
That's, that's the only way we can live the Christian life. You may be able to fake things for a while just because you want other Christians, other people in this room to approve of you or to, to look up to you, but eventually your heart is going to come out. I am the living proof of this. I did this fake Christian thing for about 20 years. That's, that's the only Christianity I had was a fake one. And, and eventually my heart exposed itself real big time. It, 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 was, it blew out into... It, it, it was too, too obvious for me to ever deny. But our heart is eventually going to come out. And the Beatitudes comes in right here. This is where the Beatitudes comes in and helps us start to, to get these things and our motivations in the right place. We're to be poor in spirit. We're back at the very first, we're back at the very first Beatitude. We are to come to God as beggars who have nothing and who can offer nothing but only plead for God's grace and mercy. A person can fake humility for a while, but eventually pride is going to arise over our ability to be self-abasing. We, we, our pride will eventually get to the place where we can't be humble, in, fake humble anymore. True humility of the heart only comes when a person sees and believes himself to be unworthy of God. For only then will there be true gratitude towards him and a desire to please him. I read a quote this week from uh, a theologian pastor uh, in New York. His name is Tim Keller. And he said, the irony of the gospel is that the only way to be worthy of it is to admit that you're completely unworthy of it. Isn't that awesome? The only way to be worthy of it is to admit and truly believe that you are unworthy of it. And all of a sudden, that's when the work of Jesus Christ is done. That's when we are made worthy. A person can fake being sorry over sin for a while, but the sorrow that we fake never leads to that godly repentance. Isn't that, isn't that what we want to get to, right? We want to get to godly repentance, but if I'm faking it and I'm, thinking, and I'm doing it for the wrong reasons, doing it for myself, doing it for all y'all, I'm never going to change for the right reason. I'm never going to become godly repentant, and God's never going to do a work in my life. That godly sorrow will never exist. My kids are masters of this. If you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. Your kids are masters of the, say, say you're sorry. Say you're sorry to your sister. Tell your brother you're sorry. 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 I said say it and mean it. Sorry! No, you're not. <laughs> you're not sorry. But sadly, I can do this too. And you can do it too. We all can do it. It's easy to be sorry when we were just really caught. It's easy to be sorry that we were caught. It's hard to be sorry enough to change. That's real, that's real sorry is when I want to change from the way I was. And where it gets so super important is that only those who have the godly sorrow that leads to repentance, they are the ones who are comforted. According to our beatitude from a few months ago, they're the ones who are comforted. See, meekness only belongs, the, the blessed are the meek, meekness only belongs to those who have their full trust in God. I can't fake that. I can't, I can't get that blessing, that meekness, if I'm faking it. Otherwise, there's always going to be a limit on what you are willing to do and suffer on account of serving the Lord. There'll always be a limit. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness is only also true of those who want God's approval over men. See, I can't even now start doing the Beatitudes. Jesus has now come back. We're, we're a chapter down the road, and Jesus has come back, and he's even saying, look, this is, this is how you get to that place. 
that you can start working those beatitudes because everyone else who hungers and thirsts thirst after righteousness is going to end up defining righteousness according to a list of do's and don'ts. A strong evidence of this is what people do when they run into someone who does not follow their particular list of rules and regulations. When we run into somebody who doesn't do what we do, are we humble? Do we mourn over that person's sin? Are we merciful? Or do we look down on that person and think that we are superior? Self-righteousness eventually demonstrates itself by what it demands of others in order to give approval. If I am self-righteous, you have to meet my standard before I will approve of you. That's what self-righteousness, that's, that's the insidious nature of self-righteousness. That's what it, it changes our character in that way. But if we love like Jesus, then we don't really care what the new person who walks in the church house looks like when they walk in. We rejoice that they're here. That's the, that's the truly righteous person versus the self-righteous because mercy comes from those who have received it. If I have received mercy, I don't care what somebody looks like that walks in the back door. I'm just happy they're here. Those that seek the Lord's approval seek to be like him, and then they give mercy to others the same way that they have received it, which I don't know about you guys, but I have received it in just billows, just fathomless billows of love. And if I have received it that way, shouldn't I be passing it out that way? Those who want the approval of men are going to give mercy only when it is to their advantage. And purity of heart simply cannot belong to someone who, who, that values the approval of men over the approval of God. Because your heart's always going to be in conflict. A person that wants to please men will also define peace as the absence of conflict. See, we're now to the peacemakers. Quiet is more important than a conception of peace. And if compromise must be made, then I'm going to do it just for the sake of peace and quiet. But a biblical peacemaker wants that true reconciliation and restoration that can only take place when there is truth and justice. And so peace is pursued through the conflict. That's an important distinction. We will pursue peace through the conflict. We will not just, we will not just surrender but we will keep on pursuing peace even as, even as the conflict exists. Only a person who places the same value on truth and justice as God does is going to persevere through the conflict in order to achieve true peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. And then our reaction to the last beatitude, our reaction to persecution reveals our heart. Only a person who is consumed with the glory of God can rejoice in the midst of persecution. And only that person can love their enemies and pray for them. There are still some Christians, we've talked about this, who thrive on being persecuted under the belief that that means, oh, it, the more persecuted I am, the more the Lord loves me. But only a person who is consumed with their relationship with God will be concerned about attitudes as well as actions. Right attitudes, right spirits, right guys? We know that. They will be just as concerned with unrighteous anger that occurs in their hearts as they would be if someone actually committed murder. I'm going to be concerned about that anger in my heart. They seek to put to death the desires of the flesh and not just avoid carrying them out. That's a long, that's, that's, that phrase needs a lot of unpacking. Let me read it again. They seek to put to death the desires of the flesh and not just avoid carrying them out. Walking around from 
day one till the day we die with all kinds of lust, all kinds of anger. But I haven't killed anybody. Walking around with all kinds of lust. But I haven't committed adultery. See, do you see the point that Jesus is trying to make? We've got to get rid of those desires of the heart. That's what he's asking us to do. That's how he clothes us with righteousness and then gives us the help that we need to do those things. See, they seek to put to death the desires of the flesh instead of just not carry them out. We keep our promises if we're righteous. The, our word can be trusted because we know that God holds us accountable for every word that we speak. True righteousness is of the heart and it comes out of a motivation behind, out of the motivation behind what we do, say, and think. This is important because it is not enough for us to do good and nice things, guys. Even those with no claim to know Jesus can be good and nice. Even sinners do that, is exactly how Jesus put it. Non-Christian parents can love their children and give them good gifts, can't they? Non-Christian parents can teach them good ethics. They can teach those things. But that's not what makes you a Christian. It is not enough to just be outwardly nice and have a nice moral religion. There must be a change that happens on the inside. Sister Becky, we're going underneath the pew. She asked us were we going to be able to sit on the pew or were we going underneath it today? I think we're going underneath it. I think that's, that's where we're headed. There must be a change inwardly. The heart must be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. I've given a lot of thought to how does the church reach out and reach its community and do all these things. How, how do, what's the best outreach things that we can do for the community? How can we uh, let the whole, rap, all of Rapids and Grant Parish know that we live for Jesus Christ? All kinds of programs. I've looked at other methods that churches do. I've seen how their, their advertising campaign on Facebook, what they, you know, the, the things that they, they tell us. And I've thought about the different methods of getting attention, you know, the, the different events that churches put on. And I thank God for what we, our fall thing. That was awesome. Everybody that had a part in that, that was one of the most awesome things. There's no telling how many people walked on the parking lot. Awesome. And I am not denigrating that at all. I'm not putting it down. But I know one thing without question. We will never make a dent in the community around us that is lost and without Jesus Christ and destined for hell unless there is something radically different about us. We have to change. We will never attract a non-Christian to Jesus Christ by our displays of outward religious morality. Uh, just screaming as loud as we can, I don't drink, I don't go to movies, I don't smoke, I don't have sex outside of marriage. I boycott stores that sell pornography. I boycott places that, that perform abortions. I write all my, my uh, congressmen and senators, I write them all and tell them how mad I am about all that kind of stuff. I write to them. But that is not going to stop the moral slide in our community. Those things may need to be done or not done depending on the circumstance or avoided, but they are not the things that attract people to Jesus Christ. If anything, some of those things make us look like the kind of zealots that the media likes to tell us, tell everybody we are. Oh, they're just a bunch of zealots, right-wingers, you know, watch out for them. The world doesn't care about how loudly you scream you are a Christian. What will attract people to Jesus Christ and what will have an effect on our community, what will cause people to recognize their own sin and then cry out for God's mercy is when the people who profess to know God actually do know him and live accordingly if we as a church are going to affect Grant Parish 
And Northern Rapids, let's face it, a lot of us live, I live in Rapids. Most of us either work there or spend some time in Rapids. So we got Grant and Rapids. If, if we as a church are going to affect Grant and Rapids Parish for the cause of Jesus Christ, then each of us as an individual will have to live a life that demonstrates without any doubt that we know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. One thought must control everything that we do. What will bring glory to Jesus Christ? What will bring him glory? He is the one I want to please. Nobody else. I want to please him, not myself, not other people. It is him. I want my reward to come from him. I don't want my reward for, I love that y'all love me. I, I, I am so welcomed in this place. From the day I walked in and sat right over there, I've been loved and welcomed in this place, and I appreciate it. And people say kind things after I preach, and whether you meet them or not, I appreciate it. I love coming in this place, but it's not your approval I'm after. It's not your reward that I'm after. I want his reward. I want his approval. I ultimately, and you ultimately, we want to hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into your reward. You know, there's that song, Sweet Hour of Prayer, yet we're content with five to ten minutes a day. We sing onward Christian soldiers, but we're pacifists sitting out the war that's waging all around us. Do you realize there are innumerable ways that we can be serving Jesus Christ and that God has already equipped every Christian for that battle? Are we serving him in that battle? We sing, oh, for a thousand tongues, yet we're quiet with ours. We sing, I love to tell the story, yet we tell no one. Just a few minutes ago, we sang Heaven's Jubilee, yet we love what's down here more than what's up there. We sing victory in Jesus while we sit in defeat. Do we really live according to our own profession of faith? I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I say that, is my life showing that? Is it, is it obvious to people that I am living up to my profession of faith? I love and believe in Jesus Christ. Will people know, do we really want to be Christians? Do we really want to be Christ-like? Do we really love the Lord with our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Or are we so busy? Are we so busy trying to do what we think people want us to do that we neglect those important things like personal prayer, Bible study, meditation, going to church? Are we so afraid of what people might think about us that we fail to live the radical life that Jesus Christ has called us to? And do we forsake living for Christ out of fear of being called a fool or a fanatic? I did that for a long time. I was so worried about what y'all would call me, what people would say about me, that I wasn't going to be too Christian. I'm not going to be too much of one of them. I mentioned two weeks ago that if we are to live the way that Jesus described in the Sermon on the Mount, then we must die to self and live for him alone. Paul said so well in Galatians 2 and 20, I have been crucified with Christ and yet I live, but no longer me, but Christ who lives within me. If I am crucified with Christ and then he lives in me, then my greatest concern in all that I do is what does Jesus think about this? What does he want me to do in this situation today? What does he want me to do in my circumstance? What does he want me to do when a problem arises? What does he want me to do when, when that guy cuts me off on the expressway? That's the question that I ask. 
It's not to be, what do I think about it? Or what do other people think about it? Or how should I handle it? Or how should, what would other people think if I did it this way? Have you been crucified with Christ? Are you putting to death the deeds of the flesh and laying aside your sin? We can fake living for Christ for a little while. I did it. Oh, I know what I'm talking about, guys. I did it for a very long, I did that for a long time. I was a good faker. I did it for a long time. I faked living for Jesus Christ. But until we die to self, it's faking and people will eventually see through it. And then our witness will not be genuine. We'll turn off people instead of attracting them. We're the thing that stands between the message of Jesus Christ and the world. It's Christians who don't look like Christians when they're out at Super One. That's what stands between the church and, and, the, and the lost and dying world. Our witness will not be genuine, and that will turn off a world that's so hurting and so lost. Where is your heart seeking approval from? Who are you doing this for? This whole thing, who are you doing it for? Who are you trying to impress? And where are your treasures laid up? Are you seeking a reward that comes from your heavenly Father or one that comes from men? I know what reward I want. I know where I want to spend eternity. I want to spend it in the arms of my Father. I want to spend it with Jesus. I want to be dancing around the throne, worshiping for a thousand years. That's what I want to do. That's where I want to spend my time. And, and so I'm going, to, I'm going to store up, while I'm here on earth, I'm going to store up my treasures there so that I'll spend time up there. That's where I want to go. I want my whole life, I want it to be as, as obvious and blatant as anybody can see that I am following Jesus Christ. Because I keep coming back to this theme. What ends up happening, it's like what John John the Baptist said to Jesus when Jesus walked up to be baptized, he said, I must decrease and you must increase. Our prayer should be that too. In my life every day, as I walk through the store, as I go get gas, as I go to church, as I go to work, I must decrease so that he must increase. At some point, I must be a reflection of Jesus Christ. It must get to the point where people stop seeing Chris and they start seeing Jesus. That's the goal. That's what the Beatitudes has described. That's the whole, since June, what we've been on, that's what the Beatitudes describes. When I start exhibiting those characteristics in the Beatitudes, I have become a reflection of Jesus Christ. All of this is about that. And we can be that. Submit to Jesus Christ. Follow him. What pleases you, Jesus? Ask yourself that question this week. What pleases you? And then look to please him. Do the things that are pleasing to God. The things that show forth his glory. And the world will be changed because of it. Lives will be changed. People will come running in those back doors. I keep saying it, but it's going to happen. People will come running in those back doors because they saw you doing something that was totally against what the world would do, but they felt Jesus Christ in it. We can be that kind of people. We can be those kind of people. God, I don't even know how to finish. <laughs> this is a weird place for me. I don't even know how to finish. Do y'all have a song? Could we stand? I don't know what song they're going to sing, but whatever song they sing, I want us to concentrate in our brains. What can I do different this week? 
How can I live for Jesus Christ this week? How can I live a life that's pleasing to Him? And when situations come up and when circumstances, things come up in the middle of the day, how would Jesus want me to handle this? Start asking that question. Put yourself this week. You know that employee that's going to make you mad. You know the thing that your wife is going to do that's going to make you mad, that your kids are going to do that's going to make you mad, the driver on the expressway that's going to make you mad. Put yourself in those positions. How would Jesus have me handle that? And I can change and I can become a reflection of Jesus Christ.